Welcome back to the Get Cyber Resilient Show. This week is our Behind the News episode. I'm Dan McDermott, your host for today, and I'm joined by our resident cybersecurity experts, Garrett O'Hara and Vin Yuan. Today, we have another high-profile breach to unpack, this time the ransomware attack on one of the country's largest health insurers, Medibank Private. Then, we'll dive into an update into the fallout and investigations launched off the back of the Optus data breach. And for our final deep dive story, we'll take a look at the information overload, burnout, and talent retention challenges impacting SOC performance. And as always, we'll end with a wrap of the latest breaches and vulnerabilities to make the headlines. Gar and Vin, welcome to episode 115. And after covering the Optus breach in detail last time we met, today we sadly have another very high-profile breach to unpack at Medibank. Gar, can you kick us off with a recap of what's happened here? Yeah, and uh, good good morning to both of you. So, uh, like, it, it, does it feel like we're in deja vu or inception? You know, we just sort of keep seem to seem to keep having the the same old stuff happening. But um, I suppose it's indicative of what's going on around the world. It's not an Australian problem. Um, yeah, Medibank um, last Friday, uh, so that's Friday the fourteenth of October, came out and sort of did an incident disclosure where they. Um, you know, described that they had seen something going on, weren't entirely sure what it was at the time, and made the uh, the statement that you know there was no personally identifiable information um, or no evidence that sensitive data had been um, compromised or accessed. And uh, unfortunately, as is the way with these things, as time goes by, uh, you start to see that uh, the narrative will change sometimes as new evidence comes to light. And um, you know, interesting to note, I suppose, before we even get to the the information that was breached that there was a share price drop which you know happened on Monday so this you know the announcement was Friday Monday when the ASX opened we saw a five percent drop in the share price did recover so I think they they rounded out somewhere around three point five percent loss uh, or three point four percent loss overall um, and then as the week proceeded I think it was maybe yesterday or the day before um, the um, organization came out and basically said, well, actually, yes, it, there was data uh, compromised and they came out and said things like first name, surname, date of birth, Medicare cards, policy numbers, phones, phone numbers, um, and then the claim data. And I think the claim data is the one I'd maybe worry about most because that's potentially got the the numbers that indicate the services that have been provided through um, Medibank. So you could fairly easily figure out, you know, what's going on for somebody in terms of, of health. Um, so I think that's definitely a bit of a worry. Um, interesting, actually, the comparison with uh, Optus, and I know we're going to talk about that, but, um, you know, Optus being off the exchanges, they didn't have to worry about that part of it. Uh, there, you know, there, <laughs> there was no share price drop because they're they're not listed. So yeah, that was kind of an interesting comparison. But yeah, really um, just unfortunate. And I think, you know, given the breach fatigue that's already going on, it's probably the last thing, um, you know, Australians who are customers probably of Optus and, and presumably Medibank, I'd love to see the Venn diagram of the, you know the, the sort of people who've been caught up in those because the people in that uh, that middle section are probably just you know waking up and, and feeling pretty fatigued with the whole thing now. Indeed, and Vin, I think one of the interesting things about this is the way the story has evolved, right? And 
like I think as we've looked back over ransomware over the last few years, we normally expect that sort of the first thing is is that your systems get locked and then you're like how to ransom to get to get them unlocked. That's not the case in, in this scenario at all. That really they've exfiltrated the data sort of in the background and then have taken time to actually ask for the ransom, which is quite different to how we've sort of seen a lot of this play out over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think this is um, kind of what we're seeing a lot more now. It's very strategic. It's very thought out attacks that you know aren't there for the quick win. That they who knows how long they've kind of been behind uh, the scenes for. Um, I think still to this point, we're still unsure of what exactly has happened. I think there's been reports of, you know, there's been weird occurrences within the network. There were precursors to ransomware. Um, and obviously at the end, there was data exfiltration too. So I think as we then start to kind of move along, we'll then start to see exactly more information around one, how they got into what they have access to. And thirdly, you know, we've seen samples of this threat group saying, hey, we've got details for these many people. Who's to say that there won't be actually more that comes from it? Um, I think one of the, I guess, really key things you mentioned there, Gar, was the type of data, right? And things like policies uh, that kind of show you what someone has received in terms of treatment, location as well. It's a different type of data, right? If we then start to think about, well, credit cards and passport numbers, they can change. Whereas the treatments you go through, the places that you go, um, that stuff kind of stays with you for a while as well. And although it's not financial crime we're necessarily looking at in the first place, um, I think there's a lot to do around identity fraud and potential like attacks later on that can leverage that information as part of. I think worth uh, worth kind of digging into that, the idea of ransom as well, because uh, you're spot on, Dan. I think we're, we've gotten so used to the systems being locked up version of ransomware where, you know, the, the leverage is the mm. operational impact to the organization. You know, you can, you can't continue providing services to your customers, et cetera, until you give, give us the money. Um, but you know, here it's a straight out, we're going to expose mm. the data, actually very similar to Optus, right? Uh, we're going to expose the data or pay us the money. Um, and it's just a different type of leverage. We've actually, I mean, we've seen it in the two pronged attacks where they were doing both of those. Mm. It wasn't just the, the operational downtime, but actually it was the, Hey, we're going to, we're going to publish the data um, if you don't pay us the money. And we saw a little bit of uh, sort of the same thing, but the, the the sort of third version of that, which is going directly after the the sort of people who've been caught up in the breach, um, saying, "Hey, we've got your we've got your healthcare information now. We see you got treatment for you know X Y Z. We're going to make that public unless you send us you know five hundred bucks in Bitcoin and and you know make some money that way." And then you wonder like, what's next? Is there is there some leverage that we haven't thought of? Um, that the the attackers can kind of figure out where it's not just locking up systems or or data extral, but you know something else potentially. The other the other one, and I think it's worth pointing out, and, and I think Vin just mentioned this, is the the perception sometimes um, that you know people click on a link or open an attachment, and then you know within five minutes the big red light goes off in the in the sock, mm. and everyone's freaking out, and, and you know something's happening. Takes a long time sometimes. You know, they'll sit in um, inside the organization and, and they'll sort of do that sort of navigation within the organization to get to some system um, that allows them to to do the bad thing. Whether that's you know well, these days it is often ransomware or data exfil, but um, that can be a really long time between the you know the link click and the bit where the sort of binary that does the bad thing gets sort of installed and, and run within you know whatever system they're actually sitting on. I think that's a fascinating aspect of this one is is that the way it started was is that Medibank said, 
ooh, we've noticed something suspicious. And so it's like they've noticed. But what we don't know is, is how long was that, you know, was, I guess, that breach actually in place before they actually noticed the suspicious activity itself? I think they, they saw it on the Wednesday. As I think I saw that in one of the articles. So it was, you know, two days later, I think they disclosed the incident. Um, but again, to your point, Dan, that doesn't mean that that's when it when started. It, started, it just means yeah. when it was noticed, right? And that's a real, it's a real different thing, um, and and that's the problem, right? I mean, it's it's uh, the problem with trying to see the signal in all of the noise that a SOC team has to deal with. This stuff mm. is, I think, it's not easy. Um, is the reality? It's it's very challenging. Um, you know, depending on what's going on, and I think this might be an example of that. Where uh, luckily they they did pick up a uh, signal, um, yeah. even if it was two days. And it's interesting in this case as compared to Optus, where Optus, we very much knew how the breach occurred. We knew there was the breach of the API, the open API, and you know, and how access was, I guess, achieved. In this case, we really haven't got the information as to actually what the compromise was, but we do know that it's two of their customer-facing systems. So it's not Medibank customers per se directly of that brand but it's of their sub brands of ahm and international students so it is a, a part of their overall sort of systems is what so far has been acknowledged has been compromised yeah they they took those offline i think um and it, it's hard to know right i mean we we've talked about this before those early days of a breach um, the media, everyone's craving information and updates. Mm. And the reality is those teams are scrambling to try and understand, you know, what's going on, what systems have been um, compromised and in what ways, what data has maybe been touched or uh, altered or exfiltrated. And like, that's a really uh, hard job. But yeah, anytime I've ever spoken to somebody who's been through <laughs> that, I almost feel like hugging them or, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it just seems like any, I've never had to go through that, and it just sounds like an awful, awful time. Um, and I think that's that's kind of what you're seeing here is they're trying to do the best, presumably, to limit the uh, the blast radius, as they describe it, and um, make sure that their their customers as are as protected as possible. And then trying to do that without. And I think Vin, you made this point last week, uh, or maybe even during this week over in New Zealand, around not getting ahead of yourself with the, the comms that go out when something does go wrong uh, because the you know what's even worse than not giving any update is, is sort of having to walk back on something because the information wasn't complete and maybe an organization gets ahead of itself in terms of trying to update its customers and then, oh, actually it turns out the thing we said, that's not true and you know, it's this other thing. So I think you know, that kind of measured, measured and accurate response, it's in direct conflict with the craving that customers and the media have for updates when this stuff um, happens. Um, and I think they, I think it was their CEO um, did talk about potentially a set of credentials that have been um, compromised. Like that could mean anything, right? It's it's really hard to sort of say what that what that is. But we're seeing so much of that these days. Um, cred harvesting is you know it opens the keys to the kingdom depending on how you've set up your uh, authentication in in an organization. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to that point as well, there's there's not a perfect formula in terms of how much information you release. On a rare, on a certain cadence, right? Because of course, people would want to know if their information could be potentially up for grabs. Um, but then we also need to make sure that you know, we're not instilling uh, false information out there and making everyone fearful. Hey, I don't know where everything is. I don't know who's got access to my stuff. Where there might not be as a serious issue as first intended. So there definitely is a balance between 
kind of what we need to figure out first, but then also how we drip feed that information across to the people that may be affected. And I think in terms of what Medibank have done and what Optus have done, it's it's ideal where they've sent emails out first to say, hey, you know, something's happened potentially to your data, we just give you a heads up, but then also work with the AFP and government bodies and um, the Australian Signals Directorate to make sure that, you know, they're doing all their checks and balances in the background uh, and putting their best foot forward in terms of responding to a security incident like this. Yeah, indeed. It's been interesting, again, to see the government's response. Um, you know, Claire O'Neill has, again, come out and, and been very clear and, I guess, you know, saying what's happening and providing an update at a government level with a few things. I mean, one, it was interesting that, you know, came out and said, this is a dog act. The fact that, like, they're going after medical records and that is, does, as you said, Gar, changes the game in terms of the type of information that's being breached. Um, they've also referred it to the AFP. So the federal police are investigating and that. But as we speak right now, this is a, a live incident as to what will happen from here. The, the cyber criminals have said they've released 100 records to prove that they have information. Um, and then what they've said that they're going to do next is if they don't start to get the ransom, they're going to release information of a hundred or so of Australia's most high-profile people that they have data on to, to start to make them feel the pain as to the information that they have available. So it's going to be fascinating to see. This one's not over. Um, we haven't seen the cyber criminal back down as we did in the sort of the Optus case. Um, they're sort of holding strong at the moment and are threatening to, I guess, go that next step, start releasing the data um, if they don't start to see a ransom paid, which you can't see how Medibank can now pay that ransom given the high-profile nature and, you know, the fallout potentially from that as well um, because we know just by paying the ransom doesn't guarantee that the cyber criminal decides to do the, the right thing and to go, okay, I won't release the data then, right? I think you're spot on, Dan, though. Like, how do they pay the ransom? Like, that's the reality. And, and looking at it from the attacker's perspective, yeah, it's sort of an interesting one because, I, I mean, sh shorter behind doors, you know, the, the sort of secret negotiations that maybe happen. I mean, I suspect they wouldn't, but uh, very publicly, I don't think they're in a position where they could pay the ransom, which means that is this all for naught? And and the other question I would have is, like, w what attacks like this are not dog acts? You know, I don't think there's any, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like, I, I'm, I'm sort of I, of the opinion that if this is happening and it's going to impact people, Australians, normal everyday people, then sort of by definition, it's a dog act, whether it's Optus or Medibank or any other organization, it's people's information. Sure, it's, a, you know, it's affecting the the organization at the top or the company, but, you know, ultimately the people who are suffering from this stuff are the people who are now freaking out about their identities being stolen. And it's all over LinkedIn and, and Twitter, you know, people are posting examples that, you know, may uh, or may not probably are linked to the recent Optus breach. Like, it, you know, this is impacting people's lives. It's just, um, yeah, it's awful stuff. Indeed. And I think to just to close out, I think anybody that is impacted in that, um, I guess there's a few things that can be done. You can contact Medibank and, and you know, get an update uh, directly. Um, I guess a warning would be that, you know, with things like Medicare numbers and that they are looking at working with Services Australia and to reissue some of those just beware that that's another opportunity for the scammers to send send you know false information and saying you know please verify this and click here and do these things and send SMSs and these sort of things. So just beware of those type of things that can happen off the back of this with new attacks coming out as well. So I think 
uh, I guess, a heightened vigilance around, you know, all of this at the moment. I think it's, you know, I think Optus brought it front and centre. Um, this is really bringing it home. And I think for all sort of Australians and consumers to, to be wary um, and make sure you just are taking that extra moment, read that information carefully um, and just be careful clicking those links. So we obviously have made the comparison to some of the Optus breach, uh, VIN, but really what would be interesting is to take a look now at like what has been, I guess, some of the fallout and also some of the response from the government launching some investigations off the back of what happened there. The story continues to unfold, right? Um, and I definitely don't, in my opinion, don't think we've heard the last of it. Uh, there's that flow and effect post-incident where you then start to really have a closer look at the regulations put in place. And I think Claire and Neil called it out where we're still behind the eight ball, right? We're still very immature when it comes to our legislation, our regulation standards and kind of what we do post-breach. Um, but it's interesting, right? A joint investigation was is started with the Office of Australian Information Commissioner, so the OAIC, in conjunction with the Australian Communications and Media Authority, that's the ACMA, and really to look into the Optus breach and see how they actually handled the customer information and the data there. And I think at the end of the day, we'll be kind of looking to determine whether or not the information Optus has collected and also retained, remember, it's also current and previous customers too, was it actually necessary to carry out its business? I know we spoke about this in Lent last time, which is around like, do they really need to see my driver's license and my passport number if I just need a SIM to, you know, call my parents every now and then or to access some web pages uh, from my phone? Um, we're seeing the continual impact, not only just from a regulations and standards perspective, but also you kind of mentioned before that, guys, what does it mean for the individual too, right? Sometimes we kind of lose scope of that where there's this big picture around, hey, we're going to see things change around regulations, but there are... Aussies that are being affected by this day in, day out. Yeah, I totally agree. The um, Looking at the AG's comments as well, I think, you know, as they look at the uh, potential kind of reform of the Australian privacy principles, I mean, it's it's sort of, <laughs> it's a laundry list of the things I think we spoke about uh, when we talked about Optus the uh, first time. So that's a couple of weeks ago now, I suppose. Um, but it's it's the stuff you'd want to see, like the fines being increased so they're not a cost to business. I mean, it's the stuff Finn just described Um the question around why why retain this data at all, and you know, and then the sort of policies and procedures that are in place to to protect that. I think these are really really good, uh, really good things. Um, it was also interesting. I mean, <laughs> to see the the evolution of the conversation is something we've talked about on this show so many times. But you know, how do you do identity verification in a safe way? And you know, we've talked about facial verification systems and you know all of that good stuff. Um, but this has kind of raised the specter of a centralized digital ID, which uh, look, it's an interesting one. I think everyone would agree. Like there's risks to centralization. That's a, a fairly obvious comment to make. It you know creates a potentially single place to get all the good stuff. Um, but I think what we're seeing right now, it's fair to say, is the risk of decentralization, where every organization out there seems to have a copy of our personal um, personal data and and really sensitive data. Um, and is this a case of kind of choosing the lesser of two evils? I suspect, like if I had to choose right now, I'd say let's be more like Estonia and like let's go all in on you know digital and do it well. And like it's a quite an old episode now, but um, when we spoke about that Estonians uh, on the pod, well, like I say ages ago, um, the Estonian citizens were much more trusting of digital than they were of you know non-digital formats. 
and, and I think that points to like this is a culture change thing in Australia. Um, and it would need to be done well, right? I'm, I'm not sort of a, I don't think I'm a Pollyanna when it comes to this stuff. Well, maybe I am, but I definitely think the, um, you know, massive, massive um, criminal Im- implications if anyone did the wrong thing by trying to attack it, like as in, you know, the full force of the law so, sort of stuff. And then just you know, like heavily, heavily, heavily over um, invest in the security of a centralized system. But feels like it removes a lot of the risk around what we're seeing at the moment, which is just everybody's collecting everything um, in some cases because they have to, because you could be a drug dealer rather than a uh, just a normal citizen. They need to be able to, I suppose, have some sort of a link to, of identity to to um, give a mobile number. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the, the, the digital ID lands and how that conversation goes nationally. I like what you mentioned there, Gar. It's, um, it's, uh, it needs to be done well, right? Um, and I think when you then start to swallow something that's so new potentially here um, in Australia, it's kind of making sure that the people that will be using it, you know, your 20 odd million Australians are very comfortable and they understand the risks that come with it when they're leveraging something like a centralized digital ID. Uh, I can't help but think if we were in a situation where we had that implemented uh, successfully, um, there are impacts to Australians now where there's main source of ID verification is using a passport. Um, and then there's some confusion with Australians where you know, they can't verify using document verification services online, but they can then use the passport to verify themselves in person too. So I can't help but just think about digital ID in this case being a very handy thing to have where, you know, say for example, your passport number gets leaked um, and it's out there, but there are still other ways you can then start to authenticate and say you are who you are. It's very much a non-trivial task though, right? What we're talking about, this is years in the making. And so, um, and Gar, you may not have been in Australia at the time and Vin, you may not be old (laughs) enough, but some of us remember that uh, (laughs) this isn't the first rodeo that uh, Australia's been down on this path. Um, There was um, what was called uh, the Australia ID card project um, many moons ago that was... And as we all know, we don't have an ID, Australia ID card, um, was an epic failure, right? After goodness knows how many hundreds of millions of dollars spent on developing out the process and the consultants and getting all the advice, um, and and it fell into a burning heap, right? Um, so it isn't the first time it's been considered, um, and it has been considered for quite a number of years, um, but has never, I guess, had the, uh, the fortitude to be able to get up and get through both in terms of, I think, the technology complexity, and I think some of that's changed and it's got easier in some ways mm-hmm. with technology, um, but also I think the government's appetite to take on what would be a multi-year sort of project to be able to deliver that and deliver it well to, to citizens. And the politics of it, Dan, um, I, mm-hmm. I suspect would be uh, very uh, interesting to navigate because I think what you've hit on there is the, the sort of cult- cultural it feels repulsive to many people, the, the idea of any kind of centralized identification, including me. Like, you know, I mean, it's not like I'm sort of secretive about my uh, lack <laughs> of trust when it comes to all of this stuff and that we're on a, a very fast march towards Gattaca. But we're doing that already because we're letting private enterprise basically create the same same sort of um, uh, outcome. So, like, all we're talking about here is at least we own it as citizens. You know, for people we vote for, they control it rather than private enterprise. Uh, that's, I think, the the challenges that I think many people, and like I say, there's a part of me that is kind of like freaked out about the idea of um, a central authority, you know, for digital ID. But 
looking at what's happening at the moment, that just seems like the lesser of two evil because right now the the schmuzzle that you know Optus and Medicare uh, customers, uh, sorry Medibank uh, customers are going through, points to we need to do something differently. Um, it, it you know that that to me is the the conversation. But you're right, it's it's years and it's complex and it's cultural change and technology change and and I'm sure there'd be bumps along the road. But I think the ultimate outcome would be, you know, a net, very positive net outcome for Australia. Uh, and then, I mean, something that just comes to mind now is does that create a digital divide where there's a section of the community that are not very good techni- you know, at technology, um, you know, maybe older people, people who just don't care about this stuff. Um, does that, do they then somehow end up at higher risk because they're not digital natives and that, you know, we'd need to cater for that too. Yeah, definitely. Very complex area when you get into it, right? I mean, that's the thing. There's so many implications. It does feel a little bit like uh, now could be the time, though, that, you know, Claire has got, you know, the voice of the nation um, at the moment and, every you know, everybody's ears listening to what she's saying about what's happening from a cyber perspective probably like never before. So um, if there's ever the time and I guess the platform um, to look at something like this, it feels like it could be now. So uh, it will be interesting to see the ongoing response from the government and, and whether it does get to something more substantive like, you know, a national ID sort of system versus, you know, updates to the Privacy Act, which are interesting, but are they going to fundamentally change, um, I guess, the the cyber activity and, and crime that we're seeing today? Definitely. I mean, it's like uh, Naomi Klein's shock doctrine. I know she, she writes about this stuff where <laughs> there's uh, politicians, allegedly, who wait for the bad things to happen so they can make these big changes. And, you know, maybe this is a good, ex- you know, a good version of the shock doctrine where I think Australians are reeling, so change is going to happen to your point, and maybe now's the time. Indeed. Moving on to the final deep dive story for this week is a look at into the impact of the cyber threats and breaches that we've been discussing on the actual cyber professionals working in security operations centres or SOCs. Sadly, we're seeing burnout, anxiety and retention impacting our already overloaded cyber professionals. Gar, I believe there's a new report that further highlights the strains in this area. Yeah, there is. Uh, so Devo, who's uh, a, a Tech Alliance partner on Momcast, so we have an integration with them, but they've produced this really good, uh, really detailed report where they kind of uh, went out and, and tried to understand from a, a SOC leader perspective, but also this, the staff who kind of work in um, security operations center environments, like what's going on, what are the challenges, how are you feeling about it all? Um, no surprise, like huge levels of, of burnout, massive amounts of anxiety, um, and, and obviously a very difficult role that many of the analysts um, operate in, in those environments. Um, it's funny, it reminded me of a conversation up in uh, the Gold Coast, actually, at Gartner, and one of the one of our customers, actually, a um, very thoughtful guy who um, we were talking about this over, over dinner, you know, this, this thing of um, anxiety in our industry, and he made a really good comment around how we probably wire our brains for negativity because like when you think about what a CISO or somebody in the security team is doing all day is they're looking for the bad thing. And, you know, if, if you kind of go along that the lines of, um, you know, almost self-hypnotism nearly where you spend so much time looking for the bad things and that starts to bleed into your outside life as well where you set up the pattern for negativity. Um, got me thinking anyway. But, yeah, back to the back to the um, uh, report. 
I don't think any huge surprises here. Um, anyone who's spoken to anyone who runs a stock environment or um, who actually works in a stock environment will be aware of this stuff. Um, we're, we're seeing things like cyber minds emerge to help people deal with the, the levels of anxiety and stress that come with the, the work involved here. Um, but, you know, the things that are probably worth calling out in the reports is the, uh, the information overload uh, as being a significant factor in workers' pain. And uh, I think that's very relatable, just the sheer volume of stuff that has to go into a human brain and then be actioned in a meaningful way um, for them to be effective at their jobs. Um, there's obviously the the problems around uh, recruiting staff and personnel. That's across the industry, but you know would be particular and, and pertinent to SOC environments for sure. Um, and then uh, I think the, the stuff that Look, it potentially applies to many folks in cyber, not just in um, SOC environments, but, you know, the, the sort of lack of investment. Um, lots of tool sets was one that's called out. And I think that's something we've been, you know, to talk about Mimecast, but we've certainly been talking about a lot lately is just the, the sort of complexity of tool sets and technologies that exist in most environments and how much of an overhead that is on teams where they actually, they weirdly spend more time managing the tool set than they do actually, you know, doing the, the work of security I mean, that was called out in the in the report also. And then the alerts, you know, the, that side of things were just tons and tons of alerts. And uh, we've spoken about this before. Um, you know, the problem there is it still takes 10, 15 minutes to go and do the investigation to figure out that the thing isn't worth it. You know, it, it is, it's not something that needs attention. Um, but you just do that so many times a day and that starts to obviously you know, wear on people and then sort of drain their, drain their morale. Um, but it, yeah, look, a really, really, I would say good report, definitely worth a read. Um, lots of stuff in there. And it's no doubting that I think the latest breaches, you know, we talk about Optus and Medibank and what's happening in that, like those cyber teams just are in such a world of pain right now, right? I mean, it's just, you know, ongoing all the time. And like you say, and then this notion of hypervigilance across the entire sector, right? And so everybody's on edge and on alert the whole time. And it's relentless and it's 24 hours a day right you, you don't get to turn off from it so that is really tough so and as you mentioned gar i think you know for people that want to dive further into this and look into that um just a shout out back to episode 111 with peter Carinas from Cyberminds. um you know to really dive into what this means for teams and for sisos and how to try to you know what's the I guess, mechanisms that are available to start to think about how to take back some control within your own sort of, I guess, mental health and thought processes in order to, you know, put some boundaries around this, right? Otherwise, like you say, it's it's it bleeds out into everything and it's all the time and nobody can live on edge like that all the time. Unless you're Jason Bourne, yeah, but definitely not. I mean, some of the stuff the, the professionals in the SOC environments are asking for support around is things like stress management, Dan, as you so rightly called out. Cyber minds are doing some good stuff there. And um, I think the world and our industry and, and Australia has gotten better at having conversations around stress and burnout. And we've had you know multiple episodes covering that over the, the years. I think it's an incredibly important um, point. Um, but you know, there's technology solutions or, or things that can help here as well, which is things like automation and... Um, you know, integrations uh, is called out also where you can look at um, surfacing fewer false positives or trying to like dial up the signal and dial down the noise, you know, which we've spoken about a bunch of times as well. But, you know, anything that helps the, um, the folks in there um, you get to the point where not only can they get better quality information, but if they need to do any kind of remediation um, tasks that 
you know, that can be automated and giving them some time back. And that actually one of the Mimecast surveys, I feel like I'm talking about Mimecast a lot this, this week, weirdly. Um, but there wasn't there a, um, a survey, I think, of our customers around the benefits of machine learning. And actually that was one of the ones that was called out was the uh, potential work um, workload reduction for security operation center people where uh, through automation and, and better signal, they you know had they could reduce the the um, the workload, which I think was a good outcome. Yes, indeed, that's for sure. So, definitely lots of lots to dig into there, and um, hopefully, you know, continuing to provide some advice and support for all of those people, you know, dealing with this on a day to day basis in in their in their careers and their security operations center. Finally, let's wrap up with a quick review of the latest breaches and vulnerabilities to make the headlines. The first news item is how Service New South Wales is taking the first steps towards multi-factor authentication. It's a very welcome step, this one, Dan. It's Service New South Wales taking their first steps to implementing MFA or multi-factor authentication for my Service New South Wales. Um, and for me, being a Victorian, I was very I looked into it. I was like, okay, um, maybe it's something similar to and my guy's got some services there. My service new stuff well, actually has a lot of stuff available, things around, you know, obviously your certificates and I think it's around your health. There's just a lot of stuff there as well. Um, I think it's important to note that it is phase one, which is going to lead to SMS use as MFA. But then as a, we kind of progress and we update. Um, they're looking to potentially only ask MFA for certain parts of uh, the MyServe New South Wales app rather than asking for it every single time. And there's no doubt in my mind that we'll eventually get to stage where we'll go past SMS. will be things like push and all these other ability to, I guess, authenticate using um, more than just your login, your password and uh, your credentials because, as we can see, that can uh, be uh, easily grabbed by any threat actor who's trying to get to it. Indeed, like I say, a good first step and we've spoken about MFA a lot on the show before and its importance. I think also this is probably a look back to there was the driver's license breach last year or so, Gar, and this is probably, you know, a, a step in the right direction of correcting from what happened there as well. So it does show that sometimes, you know, it takes those flashpoints to then move forward in terms of what's possible and, and updating policies, procedures and technology. Next, we continue in New South Wales with the police force not ruling out further use of facial recognition technology. Gar, this is a topic we've covered as well. It is. I feel like I, I really need to get some sort of digital soapbox uh, for this stuff. And I also feel like I probably contradict myself uh, quite often. But look, this one is, uh, oh, look, it's, it's sort of interesting. Um, the uh, New South Wales police have sort of said that it's um, the use of facial recognition uh, technology that they're using is is misunderstood and um, that the part of the problem is that there's no definition of high-risk applications. Um, uh, there, there's been a lot of calls, I'd say, around the world for this conversation to happen because I think we're we're very much marking in, uh, marching into mass surveillance territory here, which I think no one wants to live in a society, I would say. I think that's fair to say, where we do mass surveillance. And I was trying to think about, like, what's a good analogy here? Because I think part of the problem with facial recognition is that it happens in the background. Uh, you know, there's a camera that sees your face. There's no interaction with a police officer, uh, you know, a human being. It just, it happens. It happens at scale. And in theory, you know, potentially there's a security outcome there, which is you find um, the bank robber or somebody's done bad things in a crowd of people and that sounds on the surface really good but i was thinking if we had to 
constantly um, provide, say, like our driver's license through turnstiles as you walked onto, you know, a pedestrian mall in a city. Um, and that happened at random times during the day where you had to produce identification and, and have that checked by a police officer. I think people would very quickly say, hang on, like, is that where we want to live? Is that who we are? But because this stuff kind of sits in the background and, and sort of, yeah, it, it feels like we, we don't really, it doesn't feel the same um, emotionally. And I think that's partly why the conversation hasn't been as, as sort of uh, energetic as I think it should be. Um, anyway, you know, w what's happened here is that, you know, there have been those calls for uh, banning facial recognition uh, technology. But yeah, certainly the uh, police are going to move, move forward with that and um, will continue to to use it um they it's a little bit interesting like there's it just seems like the, it's a one-sided conversation and not really seeing the details of how it's being used or like the level of effectiveness or any statistics around the outcomes here um and you know i'm not without sympathy to the police right they're doing an incredibly important job and i think it's it's really easy to sort of sit in the sidelines when you're safe and everything's fine and say well i'm against this stuff but if i thought they were going to catch somebody who'd done some harm to my family, then I'm you know, probably going to change my opinion pretty quickly. Um, but I, I think the transparency in terms of like exactly what is being done, how it's being used, and then what are the outcomes, the actual, like the arrests, the success rate, you know, false positives, and then the impacts to like society in general, because I think that's the really messy, hard one to understand. And I think my, it's a personal worry, is that you wait until this stuff is embedded in a society and then you kind of go, oh, hang on, it's different now. You know, we don't we don't work the same as we used to as a society, but it's too late at that point and you can't kind of get the toothpaste out, um, back in the tube. It's this and a bunch of other things. Machine learning falls into that same camp. You know, there's a bunch of things, but this one always just feels a little bit uh, like creepy and maybe a little bit of overreach. And I think it ties back to, you know, if we had a national central identity system that might include your face as part of that uh where you know it, this could be an unintended consequence of of such a system as well so this is where like you know there's the good side and the risks associated and that societal impact so again one that's going to play out over a long period of time and isn't going away um and i think is going to be evolve and we're going to have to learn to live with it and understand the the ethics and the morals and and the way to live with that as a society rather than it being a yes or no answer right i think that's that's where we're heading a final story for today vin we hit the trifecta of large australian brands hit by a cyber attack this time it's woolworths yeah, it's absolutely crazy in terms of the string of cyber attacks we've seen for these large Australian organisations in the past few weeks. But my deal, a subsidiary of the Woolworths Group, um, have announced that their data was exposed from the customer relation management system, um, something along the lines of a compromised user credential. Uh, I'll, I'll be curious to see if this podcast has ever been recorded without us mentioning compromised logins before, because it just seems like it comes up every every time we record. But it's one of the interesting ones where initially it's very similar in terms of, oh, we're not really sure as to what data has potentially been breached or leaked. And then after further investigation, you then start to see it's the usual culprits, right? It's their names, their birth, phone numbers, addresses. Now, the statement from Woolworths Group is that they don't store any payment, driver's license or, or passport details like that. Um, thank goodness that we don't have to worry on that side of things. 
But I think the interesting part here is post-incident, there's always something to the general people saying, this is what you should be doing. It almost seems unfair at that stage, right? Because we're trusting these organizations with keeping our data safe and secure. And there's very little you think about that we can do unless it's post-breach. And it's all the good stuff that everyone should be doing, like keeping an eye on their accounts, you know, making sure that these organizations gone through a breach aren't going to send you a text message or an email saying, we need to validate you even further. Please give me your further details and your password, right? Like being hyper-vigilant around that type of stuff. But um, it's, all, it's almost like it's a uh, never-ending uphill battle and struggle when it comes to these things. Indeed. Uh, one Another one to keep an eye out for. So a great uh, public service announcement there, Vin, to, to end with. And thank you, Gar and Vin, for your insights in another big news episode today. Gar, who do you have for us as our special guest for next week? So, yeah, next week we've got uh, Shashir Singh, who's the executive VP and CTO of our BlackBerry Cybersecurity. And um, for folks of a certain age, uh, we'll know BlackBerry very, very well from the old handset days. Still reckon it's my favorite mobile that I've had, even though it couldn't do <laughs> uh, Angry Birds and all those joyful games or uh, any of that stuff. No Uber on your BlackBerry. But uh, uh, so obviously, you know, BlackBerry have, have done a complete pivot of, of what they do, and they're really into... Um, sort of back-end security, actually, and they're, they're embedded in many of the systems in things like cars and EV and medical devices. Um, so uh, myself and Shashir have a conversation around cyber resilience and IoT. Um, they've actually just been part of a, um, a kind of set of research into cyber insurance, so we get into that a, a little bit. Um, and they've, they've also produced a threat report for 2022, so we, we cover some of that um, as well. So, yeah, good conversation with Shashir. Great, looking forward to it. So until next week, if you'd like to continue exploring key topics in cybersecurity, please jump onto getcyberresilient.com and check out some of the latest articles, including a look at how the new government is looking to transform Australian cybersecurity for a new age. We also cover why Cybersecurity Awareness Month matters more than ever. And we dive into how scammers can turn a dream job into a cybersecurity nightmare by targeting new hires. Thanks for listening and until next time, stay safe.